It's old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with your historical true crime case that will leave you maybe scratching your head. I think scratching your head. Yeah, yeah. Scratching your head because we've been head scratching for many years now about a couple aspects of this case. (laughs) Uh, Before we get started, uh, two things. First, a bit of podcast news. Scott has decided to step away from the podcast and we wish him the absolute best. We love you. Absolutely. And so it'll be Amber and I going forward. We're going to have a couple of uh, changes. The end of the month episode, every month is going to be something a little uh, different from what you normally get from us. We're trying a, trying a thing out. So we're very excited about that. Also, uh, don't forget about the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And there we have our weekly bonus episodes. We call them Old Tiny Crimeys, where we tell each other about a case that the other one might not know about. Amber told me today about an artist who led quite the interesting life with uh, swords and uh, lack of permit for said swords. (laughs) And then a little bit of maybe murder. (laughs) Accidental murder. Accidental manslaughter, I guess. (laughs) And just a really absolutely fascinating tale. I I loved every second of it. It was quite the ride. So if you are a patron, you get those as well as our monthly extra, extra episode where we do something a little different. This month, our patrons can look forward to us each telling each other about a lady hero in Probably history, we're going to try not to get too recent, but we might allow some stretching into like the 60s or the 70s just because of the sheer fact that like rules are made to be broken. Yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) it's um, harder to find ladies that they cast in (laughs) hero roles the further back you go. Not impossible, but hard. So yeah, that's going to be, I'm really excited to do that. And we'll have a special guest with us for that. So you get all of that. Plus a shout out at the end of the episode for just five bucks a month. You can't beat that deal, she said in her best infomercial (laughs) man voice. So I guess it's time to get on to the case for this week. This actually was suggested by a member of our Facebook group, Old Timey Grammy, of course. That's where you can find us as well as on Twitter. And I've been getting a little bit back into the Instagram, trying to incorporate that into the routine. So thank you to Justin Avera for suggesting that we do this case. So we are going to be talking about Charlie Ross. 1874, it's summertime in Germantown, Pennsylvania. And also, you know, across the entire Northern Hemisphere. (laughs) Same here everywhere. Yeah. And Germantown is a neighborhood of Philadelphia. It's a nice, affluent neighborhood The Ross family lives there. You have parents, Christian and Sarah. They had married in 1862, just 12 years before. And in that time, they had seven children. That's a a lot in a dozen years. You're you're not giving yourself a lot of space in between. (laughs) That's a lot of kids. That'll wear you out. So they had four boys and three girls. Girls And in 1874, they ranged in age from 10 to uh, 10 months. A nice range there. The couple met at a Methodist church, and nine years later, they married. That's impressive. That's a long courtship. 
Yeah, I was wondering about it. And in one of my sources, it was speculated, this was the book, We Is Got Him, The Kidnapping That Changed America by Carrie Hagan, speculates that it's possible it was because Sarah's family was quite wealthy already. And Christian needed to, like, get established first before he could ask her to marry him. So it took a little while, I guess. But he did get established. And in 1874, he was 51. He owned a dry goods store in Philadelphia at 3rd and Market Street. Now, I looked on a map, and uh, currently in that area, since it's just the corner, we've got four options. Two of them are nothing, according to the map. One of them is uh, CVS now. And the other one is the Old City General Store, purveyors of gifts and souvenirs. So that, I'd say, would be the best bet. And I yeah. like it better. I, I like I it better like than that CBS. one better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it, it, living up to the same purpose it was used for back in the Ross family's days. So yeah, he had done pretty well for himself. The family lived in a Victorian Italianate manor set back from the road. Mansion, sorry, not manor. But, I mean, they're very close. But then... 1873, the stock market had hit, and now Christian was in debt and going bankrupt. Things were not looking great financially in the Ross household, and they were not going to be looking good criminally soon, too, because the family was about to become the target of America's first known kidnappers for ransom, and the reason that your parents told you not to take candy from strangers. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can source that back to there. So that's the etymology of that phrase. <laughs> it's still etymology if it's a phrase. I don't know. I don't know either. We need to look up the etymology of etymology. At this point in time, in the summer of 1874, Sarah Ross had suffered an illness and was recuperating in Atlantic City, although there was some, you know, like backyard over the fence gossip among the neighbors that maybe all this financial strain made her, like, you know, anxious, and that's what sent her out of town. I was wondering about that myself, because I couldn't find exactly what illness she had, um, just that she was out of town. Which, okay, so this confuses me so much. And I know that the times are different now. But dad works, mom is out of town, and the seven children, Stroughton, Harry, Sophia, Walter, Charlie, Marion, and Annie... Who's watching them? Okay, I actually know the answer to this. Okay. <laughs> okay. At the house in that July, it was uh, in the household, Charlie, Walter, and Charlie was four, Walter was five, and then the two baby sisters who were like two and ten months. And what happened was Sophia, the oldest girl, she went to Atlantic City with, uh, with Sarah, with the mother. And their older brothers were staying with their grandmother in central Pennsylvania. Probably Harrisburg, because I think that's where the uh, where Christian Ross came from. So yeah, it was actually just the four. Plus, I mean, Christian Ross was going broke, but apparently he hadn't reached the level of broke yet where he could get rid of the two nannies, the groundsman, Pearl, oh. and the cook. Okay. So that took care of that. I did have the same question, too. I was like, who's taking care of these children? Like... Running a small business and seven children, including one who's like eight months old? Yikes. Well, if... the nannies didn't do a very good job. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if one of those nannies was perhaps also a wet nurse for the baby. Could be. So, I would think so. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. 
So it's July, Independence Day is approaching, and I think the boys are getting restless because the house is emptier than usual. They're used to a lot of hustle and bustle with all these kids and their mom and everything. And now with just, you know, two other siblings and all of the staff, it's apparently like a ghost town in there. <laughs> About Charlie, whose name was Charlie Brewster Ross, he was said to be shy around strangers but affectionate with his family. And so the two of them were a natural pair, you know, they had each other to play with. And so that's what they would do. And actually, if this had happened just a few weeks later, they wouldn't have been there. They were slated to actually switch out with their older sister in Atlantic City. So she would come home. They would go out and stay in Atlantic City with their mother, which the question was brought up. How is she supposed to recuperate with a four and a five year old boy? <laughs> Probably at a, likely a hotel. <laughs> like, just seems like it would be counter to the actual yeah. purposes of her escape out there. But you know what? Two is still better than seven. So, I mean, it's still a break. It absolutely is still a break. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> bring, in, bring in the mother, motherly viewpoint in. <laughs> no, because, okay, so like last night, my boy fell asleep and it was just my girls. And I got work done. With one fewer chi child around me. Mm -hmm. Like, I actually got stuff done. So it really is is just like, yeah, you take a couple kids out of the equation, and it's just easier to do things. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I imagine so, yes. So they would play, these two boys, outside all the time in front of their house. And over the course of about five days, two men kept on coming in a buggy to talk with the boys and give them candy. On July 1st in the afternoon, the boys took a bath and then went outside to play while they waited for their dad to get home. It was between 4 and 5 p.m. and he would he would leave work or come home generally around 6-ish. So also kind of a close scrape, but it seems like the men were probably casing the joint and had an idea of the timeline. Yeah, well, and they would they would come by every day. It started, I think the first one was June 27th. So they would do this every day. When they were outside, they'd stop and talk to them. And I think while doing this, they were getting an idea of everyone's schedule, if the children were being watched, when the dad was coming home. Mm -hmm. Getting an idea of how feasible this would be. This was definitely planned in advance. But also getting the boys to trust them. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it serves dual purposes there. These two men came again that day. They said, hey, boys, you know, why don't you come with us in the buggy and we'll get you some candy and some fireworks for Independence Day. Although it's possible that the boys might have actually asked for fireworks because it was getting to be around that time. Lots of, you know, kids playing with firecrackers and fireworks around them. And their dad had actually said, you know, that morning they had said, we want to play with firecrackers. We want firecrackers. And their dad was like, well, OK, let me come home after work, and we'll do it then, because the thing is, fireworks and firecrackers were illegal within residential areas in Philadelphia at that time. But, of course, places sold them, and people skirted that law, and so the thing was that the reason that he wanted to wait was because he was going to bring home sand to keep the sound muffled from the firecrackers. There we go. That's how you get away with it. These two men, along with Charlie and Walter... They started on this really circuitous route. Later, Walter would be asked to point out some of the landmarks and stuff that he had seen along the way, and he pointed out nearly 20 because they were they, they only went uh, a little ways, but they really took the long way. 
And they went about six miles, in fact, from Germantown to Kensington, another neighborhood. And they stopped there. Charlie was crying, apparently, and, and screaming that he wanted to go home. I think he sensed something maybe amiss. So when they stopped the buggy in front of a store, they gave Walter 25 cents, which is about $6 today, and sent him in to buy some fireworks. Walter goes in. When he comes out, the buggy is gone, the two men are gone, and his brother is gone. It's poor baby brother. I know. And it said that Walter, once he realized that he was, the brother was gone, he just stood there screaming, which naturally, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like you don't know where you are. You're five years old, and it's just settling in that, oh my gosh, my baby brother is gone too. And as the older one, he would have felt some responsibility. So it, it's heartbreaking for, for both of them, really. Back at the Ross house, Christian came home from work. It was around six o'clock, and he just assumed that the boys were off playing with the neighbor's kids like they normally would. But that neighbor then reported to him that she'd seen the boys in a buggy. He pretty much immediately goes to the police. But before he even gets there, he actually finds Walter. A man had seen Walter crying, and he was talking to a couple ladies, and the man had gotten what he could out of Walter about the story, and he said, okay, well, let me take you to the police station. So he actually, like, runs into his, his one son on the way, but then I can only imagine how his heart must have flew up into his throat with joy and relief when he saw Walter and then asked Walter, where's Charlie? And then the heart goes back down into your stomach, like with a thud. That's a heartbreaking moment, especially considering that you might have just thought that everything was fine. Oh, wait, I yeah. was worried for nothing. There, there they are. And then it's like, wait, where's the other one? Yeah, a moment of like, oh, thank God. Wait. Exactly. It's yeah. that wait moment that is just it feels like it's almost like frozen in time probably felt like that for the rest of his life. Yeah, he goes to the police, and he, they send out a telegraph with Charlie's name and age to some of the nearby precincts. And the police's idea is, well, kid just wandered off or something. And Christian is like, okay, well, isn't there anything else you can do other than send a telegraph? And they're like, no. And he asks this a couple more times, and they're like, okay, well, go talk to the captain at the central precinct if you have a problem. You know, <laughs> like, leave us alone. We did what we can. And that's it. And it seemed like this was not something that really happened, or but it did happen. I'm absolutely sure it was happened. It wasn't super reported or taken seriously. Yeah, yeah. But speaking of sending a telegraph, you'd think he would do that for his wife. Yeah, yeah. He does kind of hold that information back for a couple of days. Yeah. He does eventually get to her, but it takes it takes a couple of days. So yeah, the police think, actually one of the suggestions floated is uh, maybe a drunk just stumbled up and took it. Like, why? Why Is that something that happens a lot? That drunks are just like, there's a kid. I want one of those now. Come, come with me. Come with me. Yes, we're, we're going to go. We're going to go to the bar. about the last thing I want when I'm drinking. <laughs> yeah. I don't even want my own when I'm drinking. <laughs> I mean, maybe they think that a drunk mistook Charlie and Walter for his own kids, or at least Charlie. I don't know. It was a very strange thought to have. Very specific, but weird. And that's a detective, not just a policeman. That's a detective. There was a lot of criticism even before this of Philadelphia's police force. Yeah. This just ramped it up. So actually, Christian and his brother-in-law, so one of Sarah's brothers, they're out all night trying to track down Charlie. Because when they get to the central precinct, it's 11 p.m., the captain just left. <laughs> you just missed him. Damn it. So they try to track him down, try to see if they can retrace 
the footsteps up to the point where Walter knew and then searched that area and they, they came home with nothing. It was about 24 hours before the police actually started a search. Just imagine if they'd been on top of it. But yeah, so Christian starts with a $300 reward. That's about $7,400 a day. And he advertises in a local paper in the Lost and Found section. Lost, a small boy, about four years of age, light complexion and light curly hair. A suitable reward will be given by returning him to E.L. Joyce Central Police Station. There is no mention of Charlie's name, and that was part of his trying to keep word from reaching Sarah. I mean, answers to Charlie Ross (laughs) would have been a little bit more specific. But some other missing ads in this section that day were for jewelry, glasses, and a striped gray cat named Dick. (laughs) There you have it. And I really want to name a cat Dick. (laughs) I kind of want you to. Uh, there are some uh, new kittens out by my house. I will I will take one for you. <laughs> and you can name it Dick. And that would that be amazing. Dick. be even funnier if it's a girl cat. <laughs> I think it's a girl and it's all white. <laughs> oh, man. Then you lose the cat and you're wandering around the neighborhood. Dick! Dick! <laughs> treats! I have treats, Dick! <laughs> you're going to get the wrong kind of answers to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah. And... Walter Ross described the kidnappers. He said that, this is paraphrasing him, because I'm sure a five-year-old wasn't like, he was wiry with a low forehead. (laughs) But he was wiry with a low forehead, wore a straw hat. The other one had a red nose with a weird shape. Walter called it a monkey nose. The cartilage between his nostrils had kind of been eaten away, and then the rest of it had kind of gotten a little misshapen in the process or afterwards without the cartilage to hold it together. Hmm. So, yeah, don't know what uh, ate it away. Was, was he super, like, ahead of his time and decided it was the 1980s and was just, like, snorting lines of coke all the time? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, was coke a thing back then? Like, yeah. I mean, it was in the medications. I guess it could have been a thing. Yeah, yeah. There are some sources that say the mayor of Philly was off vacationing in California when the kidnapping happened and then returned once it started to become big news. But Carrie Hagen's book, We Is Got Him has the mayor in Philly, and I think that's the most likely scenario because it's so close to Independence Day in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, Philadelphia is a very important I city. Don't, I feel like he would not be vacationing right now. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. So he's been probably the mayor has a lot of duties surrounding that holiday, both in the planning and in the execution of all of the events. So on the 4th of July, three days after the kidnapping, the ransom notes start. They're just terribly misspelled, and it was done. Uh, it was said to be done on purpose. It hurts my head, though. Oh my god, it's it hurts my head. so hard. I'm gonna read just one, just the first one, because that's all I can handle. And then later, they started to be multiple paragraphs, like a five paragraph note, because there was more than one ransom note that was sent. This was a whole conversation. So, just imagine as I'm reading this that about half of every sentence, if not more, is uh, either misspelled or a grammatical mistake. Mr. Ross, be not uneasy. You son, Charlie Brewster, he all writ. We as got him and no powers on earth can deliver out of our hand. You will have to pay us before you get him from us and pay us a big cent too. If you put the cops hunting for him, you is only defeating you own end. We is got him fit so no living power can get him from us alive. If any approach is made to his hiding place, that is the signal for his instant annihilation. If you regard his life, life, of course, 
puts no one to search for him, you money can fetch him out alive, and no other existing powers. Don't deceive yourself and think the detectives can get him from us, for that is one impossible. You hear from us in a few days. It's brain-breaking. It is. It is. And I believe this was the first of 23 ransom notes. Mm-hmm. Yep, 23. That's that's a lot of, of terrible, terrible writing to have to read. Mm-hmm. You're already being tortured. Your child is missing. You have no idea where the child is. And then they're like, what? let's torture him some more. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, that was the point where he was like, I should probably tell my wife that one of our children is missing. Mm-hmm. He had been reportedly afraid that it would affect her already fragile health. And so that was why he, he said he tried to keep it from her. But after this happened, he actually went to Atlantic City with Walter to give her the news. And that was on Saturday. She went back to Philly on the train on Monday because you know, obviously she wanted to be home to help out with the search and whatever she could do and be with all of her children too, I'm sure. The second ransom letter referred to a previously requested ransom that I don't think is in any of the known notes for $100,000, which is $2.4 million today, but then kind of backtracked and says, all right, we'll go with $20,000. Okay, I do have a couple more quotes from these letters, but just the ones that are, are kind of giving you an idea of the threats they're making. If you love money more than child, you be its murderer, not us. If we get your money... You get him alive. If no money, you get him dead. It's it's kind of definitely you, you know what's going to happen. And they did assure him in a mid-July letter that Charlie was safe, but was wanting to go home to his mother. That's pretty much expected. <laughs> I think he was wanting to go home to his mother about six miles after they left the house, if not sooner. And... Through the, the ransom letters, the kidnappers requested that he communicate with them by the personal section of the ledger. And then there was some back and forth there because remember, he's broke. He's on the verge of bankruptcy. He's in debt. He doesn't have $20,000. We still don't know exactly why they chose this family in particular to target. But I guess it was probably just, well, anybody who lives in one of these houses, you know, in a Victorian Italianate mansion must have just, you know, cash flowing out of their ass. I mean, like, well, from the outside, though, because you don't you don't know anyone's bank account, but you're looking at seven children and a family that live in a fucking mansion. Mm -hmm. The guy owns a business and is a a successful grocer. Mm -hmm. Like at the time, he was considered to be pretty wealthy. Mm hmm. Nobody knew about his stock market stuff, but I mean, from the outside, it still looks like they're very wealthy. They've got cooks and gardeners and nannies, and the wife is away vacationing <laughs> in Atlantic City. And also, okay, so that bothered me too. When when Sarah was away, I feel like somebody knew that Sarah was away when they started targeting these boys. It may have been that they just noticed two boys out playing out front, which might not have been the case had Sarah been there. Not that we're blaming her in any way. I'm just saying that, like... She probably blamed herself. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. But circumstances being what they were, the kidnappers took advantage of those circumstances. Crime of opportunity, here's two boys. Exactly. Any kid who is unattended in this neighborhood that is a wealthy neighborhood is a potential target. They just need to find the ones that seem like they're the most independent and are out and about and an an easy target, essentially. I mean, they're children. 
So, so yeah, it's definitely it's a rough situation for Sarah. Finally, the kidnappers gave Christian Ross some instructions on July 20th, saying to head to Albany on the Midnight Express. That's a 750-mile trip with a valise containing $20,000, which is nearly $500,000 today. And they said along the way, he was to watch for their signal. And at that point, he needed to toss the valise out of the train. And if he did everything right, he'd have his son back in 10 hours. And all along, the cops were saying, don't pay the ransom. This is the first time this has really happened in America, that somebody has kidnapped someone, a child, and said, pay us money or you don't get the kid back. The psychology behind ransom and everything and how you might approach somebody who's holding someone for ransom, whether you should negotiate or not, all of that was really not something anybody had had to think about yet. So the police are like, don't pay the ransom, don't pay the ransom. They think that that'll make it so that kidnappers will have more motivation to kidnap. Mm-hmm. They're like, if you do this and they're successful, other people are going That's to gonna do it. It's going to be a whole thing. It's <laughs> going to be a whole thing. We're going to have kids being just picked up off the street left and right. And the thing is, you know, it did become a thing, <laughs> even though they were unsuccessful, just because the idea was out there now. So people who were looking for money, they were like, well, I guess we could kidnap a rich kid, rich adult. You know, there were many rich adults who were kidnapped. There was also politics at play here, too, though, because it's 1874 and the city planners were working on the centennial celebration for 1876. They were already trying to make all their plans and they were afraid about not getting that sweet tourist money if people thought that their kids might get snatched and ransomed if they brought them to Philly. Uh Very much like the mayor of the town in Jaws. (laughs) That's exactly what this is, though. It really (laughs) is. It very much is. So they basically had Christian stalling in these kind of negotiation tactics with the kidnappers, trying to give the investigators more time to track them down. So there's, you know, back and forth about proof and there's back and forth about the actual exchange. Of course, if you're exchanging a bunch of money that you don't really have, you've had to beg, borrow, and scrape to get for a live child, you would like that exchange to be simultaneous, (laughs) not have to wait for 10 hours. And we've seen cases, the Lindbergh baby, that was a case where they were supposed to get directions to the kid after they dropped off the money and they never got the directions to the kid. So... I mean, that was over 50 years later, yeah. so nobody knew about the Lindbergh baby yet because nobody could fly. But the thing with the train, so he was on the train, and, and the sign he was waiting for was, if he saw a torch and a white flag waved at nighttime, or a white flag alone in the daytime, then he would need to throw the case instantly. And if it was found to have the money, they would bring Charlie home within 10 hours. Except here's the thing, he didn't have money in the case. <laughs> Instead, he had a letter stating that he would not pay the money until he saw his child. I didn't know that bit. I didn't know that bit at all. I had no idea. So he didn't have the money, but he was like, he wrote them a letter saying, I will give you the money as soon as I have my son back. Um, But the sign never came, and so he never threw the case. But they weren't going to get their money anyway. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And he had been asking for proof along the way and continued to ask for proof. He suggested maybe they send him Charlie's clothes that he was wearing when he was kidnapped. At first, they were like, 
people are saying that we we are parading this kid around as a girl and we're not. And then in a, like a, a letter or two later, they're like, oh, by the way, we cut his hair and we dressed him in girls' clothes and the original clothes might have been thrown out. So they're kind of going back and forth a little bit. They did offer some proof, two, two items of proof, one hard to find, another one pretty much verified everything. The first one was that on the 2nd of July, they'd been going through, I have Trenton, New Hampshire, but I feel like H and J are pretty close on the keyboards. So That's probably New Jersey because I abbreviated it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Charlie had been asleep in the ransom writer's arms and his hat had fallen off near a bridge. So they said, go and advertise in Trenton for the hat. And if somebody found it, then they'll bring it to you. That's kind of a long shot. But the next sentence, they're like, oh, by the way, he had a narrow faded pink ribbon tied around his head to keep his hair out of his eyes the day he was kidnapped. And that was true. That's a pretty specific Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) clue that they actually did, in fact, have Charlie. And then the New York Herald said the other letters are filled with threats and proofs that the writer of them, with the Confederate, kidnapped little Charlie. Several of them detailed the physical sufferings of the poor child with the purpose to wring the heart of Mr. Ross. The details had the effect to cause Mr. Ross to once again make a definite offer to the kidnapper. So that's when he was like, okay, fine, I'll give you the money, except I'm not going to give you the money. The $20,000 became a pretty big number because the, the mayor also offered a $20,000 reward for information that would lead to the kidnappers and to Charlie Ross on July 22nd. And that was at the insistence of numerous wealthy citizens. Now, of course, they have detectives on the case. Philly, naturally. New York. There was a lot of suspicion that maybe there might be something to be found in New York. They also brought in the Pinkertons Mm -hmm. and the Secret Service. (laughs) Didn't know they did child kidnappings. That's new for me in their their list of duties. If it's big enough in the news, though. Yeah, really, really. And they do have a lot of resources. So as for the Pinkertons, Alan Pinkerton himself was said to be on the case and relinquished any claim to the reward should his agency be successful. He still got paid for his work, but just the $20,000 itself. There was actually, at one point, attempts to raise money from the local citizenry for a reward or a ransom. And there were suggestions that the mayor appoint 200 citizens to go door-to-door asking for contributions from $1 to $5. The name was getting pretty big in the papers. The case was pretty well known. Everybody knew about it. So, you know, pretty much if you, if you don't, you'll probably get shamed by your neighbors. And there's this weird thing that happened in the papers, too. This was in a newspaper I've never seen before called The Anti-Monopolist. Oh, yeah. Reported that one, quote, Detective Wiseacre had said to them, It is a crusher for us. The child stealing business belongs to the old world and is patterned after the work of the Italian brigands. It is a little too much for Philadelphia. We have tried all the devices known to detectives to unearth the scoundrels and have been unsuccessful. And we are satisfied beyond a doubt that the work was done by persons who do not make this city their abode. I think that the abductors are Englishmen, and I know that they have made a great mistake in their man. They would gladly, if it were safe for them, return the boy to his parents. They must know by this time that they can obtain no ransom for him, and consequently, he is an elephant on their hands. It's a little different from the elephant in the room. Yeah, elephant <laughs> on their hands. Yeah. And so the detectives were doing door-to-door searches of the entire city. That $20,000 reward I mentioned. And then advertising. In addition to the actual press coverage, they made sure to get advertisements in papers looking for Charlie nationally. And eventually this spread internationally. 
and they got responses. People from all over, including in Europe, thought that they had cited Charlie, wrote in saying so, just creating hundreds of leads that led nowhere. But lots of people were arrested, men and women. Yes, <laughs> they certainly were. Yeah, yeah, I have a list that takes up half a page of different cases, and it's just, there's a lot of ridiculousness here. An entire tribe of gypsies was arrested and questioned early on. An Italian immigrant was arrested because one officer insisted that the ransom notes were written by an Italian. And you might think it was because of the spelling that he said that, but oh no, apparently it was the handwriting. <laughs> this person has Italian handwriting. A child... This one kills me. <laughs> this one destroys me a little bit. A child was approached by Philadelphia police and asked his name, and he said Charlie Ross. So the police took him into the station. His parents found out, came into the police station, and told the cops that their son, Charlie Loss, had a lisp. It almost sounds like a joke, I swear, but I got it from Carrie Hagen's book. <laughs> so, like, that had to have at least been reported somewhere. But it sounds like a very cruel joke. Uh, Myron Ledger was arrested in Richmond en route to Baltimore as he had a child's corpse with him. A 10-month-old child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mrs. Jackson arrested as there was a child in Philadelphia that she had that strongly resembled Charlie. And it seemed like this was a repeating pattern for her as it was deemed expedient to furnish her with letters which would prevent further annoyance. She literally had to carry her papers for her child <laughs> from the police saying, this is not Charlie Ross. That's, that's about life. That's, yeah, that's sad. You look just like a kidnapped child, honey. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Why do the policemen keep stopping us, mommy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mrs. Frederick Hamilton was arrested with a lookalike in Bennington, Vermont. One of Sarah's brothers had to go up and determine that it wasn't Charlie. Her brothers were doing a lot of this, a lot of traveling around to verify, because that was the only way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could take a photograph and send it, but a lot of people who aren't going to be able to afford a photograph, and so they're going to be like, um, no. Well, even even the, the missing poster of Charlie Ross was a drawing. Exactly, yeah. And, and drawings can be, maybe you could commission a drawing, but they can look really deceiving. So, yeah, there's a lot... A lot of traveling for them. There were two men and a woman arrested in Odell, Illinois with another lookalike. That was proven not to be Charlie. In this case, actually, it was suspected that one of the men was trying to pass off a child as Charlie in a bid to get the reward money. That's not nice. Uh, same in D.C. with a British couple and in Jeffersonville, Indiana. The police arrested a man in Lincoln, Nebraska. That was nothing. A few days later, quote, a child was discovered with a band of gypsies near Westchester, PA, end quote. Sarah's brother had to follow up on that, too. There were sightings in St. Catharines, Ontario, Barbersville, West Virginia, in Quebec, in Chester, Illinois, and that's just from July to December. We're not even talking about the entire rest yeah. of his family's lifetimes. And there was also the fact that the orphan trains had been going for 20 years. Have you ever heard of the orphan trains? I have not. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. Not funny, but uh, I just saw an Unsolved Mysteries on this like a couple weeks ago. It had started in around like 1854, and children's homes in big cities, especially like New York, were getting really full 
And so they were like, well, there's probably a lot of people in like the Midwest who need kids to work for them, you know, or want children for just so they want a child. And so they would load all these children up on trains that would just go from town to town to town. And people would come. And if they wanted to adopt a child, they could do it right there. I just imagine them with a, a big bell and they just ring it like the Salvation Army. Kids, anyone want a kid? Anyone? Children, children for sale. Free orphans, free orphans. Right here, come and get them. Hot and fresh out of the oven. No, those no. Poor kids. Oh, yeah, those poor children. And there were a lot of children who ended up spread all over, who ended up being separated from siblings. And sometimes if parents couldn't afford the children that they had, then they would send them off on these orphan trains, like just allow them to be taken in by city authorities until the point where they ended up on the orphan trains. So there's a ton of orphans. And so like any boy of that age has a chance of either thinking or other people thinking that he's Charlie Ross. And that would go on until about the time that Charlie would have hit 18. And then it's just a lot of young men who end up wondering or suspecting, am I Charlie Ross? They look back on their upbringings, and if the timeline matches up even remotely, if they were adopted when they were four, yeah, and came from New York to well, Okay, so think about it. How, how many memories do you have? Oh, I know, yeah. I was trying to think of that earlier. I was like, what do I remember from when I was four? I was like, I think I might have been that age when I got my head stuck between the slats on my parents' headboard. <laughs> So from when I was four, I remember living in a different house, but I couldn't tell you where. Like now as an adult, I know it was California, but as a child, it was just somewhere else. And uh, I remember getting stitches a couple times and being in the hospital and stuff. But And I remember an earthquake. So I could probably pinpoint I had at least two brothers because I remember during an earthquake, they had thrown me under a table. Oh, okay. But that's it. I, I don't think I could have told you what my parents looked like. From, like, now to four. If, if I left the situation at four, I don't think I could have told you anything about my parents. Mm-hmm. I could have told you that I, as a child, had an earthquake and I had at least two brothers. And that would be all I could tell you. Because you don't have a lot of memories before that. And then also, how many of your memories can you be certain are not constructed from photographs and stories? Yeah. I mean, now we have the photographs. <laughs> but like I didn't Back then I, fewer. like I know the earthquake was real because yeah. we didn't have videos. Like <laughs> yeah. We didn't have phones and shit. But then did they tell you that story enough that you, you cuz oh, that no. can, memory is so fallible human memory. It's always been terrifying to me how like we can think we remember something really well. That's why I'm a witness testimony is actually notoriously unreliable. We can think we remember something so perfectly but then you examine somebody who was in the exact same incident and they remember it so differently. But And that is very true, but, like, I remember very distinct details about it. And I think because I was so young and it was so traumatic with the earthquake and my brother, my older brother, Sean, had thrown me under this little um, coffee table that we had. Mm-hmm. And then he ran back to the doorway because he couldn't fit under the table with me. Oh, okay. So I saw him run back to the doorway and he's standing in the doorway and we had a chandelier in the entryway that actually fell right behind him. And so, like, I think just because it was so traumatic, it stuck in my brain super hard. But, I mean, Charlie didn't have a lot of traumatic things that we know of. So what is he going to remember? So he's he's removed at the age of four. And when he's 14, what do you think he's going to look at and remember? It'd be like, I remember having a brother that was, like, just a little bit older than me. Yeah. I don't remember his name anymore. 
Yeah, any kid. Like, <laughs> yeah, any kid who was around that age when they were adopted, or even there could be a, a gap of a couple years. Like, yeah. say, say they were adopted at six, and they're like, well, yeah, but where was I in those other two years? Charlie Ross could have been kept for two years before somebody had him adopted exactly. out, you know? So that even still, there, there's that gap that expands the pool of boys who will eventually become men. Yeah, but and you could definitely, too, twist Charlie's memory and be like, no, that wasn't your brother. You were an orphan. That was one of your, your best friends in the orphanage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You could easily twist a child's memories to be like, no, you don't have any brothers. Your parents died and we adopted you. And then that kid grows up and they're like, well, they said that, but I really feel like I had a brother. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And well, therapy wasn't a thing back there. So he, he would have just accepted it because you didn't have anyone to talk about in that day and age. You you wouldn't talk about feeling crazy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you got to tamp that shit down. Uh, there was a song written about the kidnapping called Bring Back Our Darling or The Stolen Child. And that made sales in the hundreds of thousands. And keep in mind, when we say song, we're talking about sheet music. Yep. <laughs> because like they didn't have, you know, cassettes or CDs or MP3s or Spotify. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's just people are just buying sheet music, as, as you do. And as time went on, actually, the public and press kind of started to turn against the family somewhat, especially in the theories behind the kidnapping. There were theories going around that Christian Ross had been the kidnapper himself or had put people up to doing it and was in it for the ransom because he was broke. There was the idea that Charlie was stolen for revenge against the Ross family, or specifically against Sarah Ross. And implicit in that is the idea that Sarah was just off tramping it up. Well, of course, it would only be revenge for her, you know, having mm-hmm. having sex because we women, you know, because women, <laughs> yeah, because women. And there was the idea that he was quote a debauchee, and that his discarded wife was really the kidnapper, and the ransom notes were. Forgery. Discarded wife actually being the idea being not Sarah, but that he had a secret first marriage and his first wife had had the children kidnapped and spirited away to her in the West. That was in the this last bit, the, the part about the debauchee and then thereafter, was in a supposed letter written to the Reading Eagle by a concerned reader named G, who purported to be a neighbor of the Ross family. And called the kidnapping a humbug. Oh, oh my. <laughs> oh my, getting salty there. <laughs> yeah. He this ended up being in reprinted in papers all across the was. United States. Of course, yes, it of was. course. Which um the family brought a libel suit. Good. Yeah. September 1874. So it's only been a couple months since Charlie's been kidnapped. They're dealing with all of that and they're trying not to let false information get out there. And not only libel them, but also confuse the facts of the case or make people think that they shouldn't care or that Charlie's okay and everything's fine. You know, so because if you think, oh, well, the other woman has him, at least a mother has him who will take care of him. That Everything's fine. We don't need to worry about this kid. So it was brought uh, by the Ross family against the proprietors of the Reading Eagle. Through the suit, it was discovered who really wrote the quote-unquote letter from the neighbor. That was Milford Ritter. Son of William Ritter. Do you want to guess what William Ritter was? Nothing. Got any ideas? No. Maybe co-publisher of the Reading Eagle? Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, right? 
So Milford got the supposed scoop from his mother, who got it from gossip at a tea party. And the source of that gossip said, well, all the Ross neighbors know about it. So it's like fourth, fifth hand at this point and gossip. Fourth, fifth hand gossip. So yeah, anything you hear at a tea party, spill the tea. You gotta spill the tea. <laughs> you gotta spill the tea. Episode subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that was a drum at the end. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. Maybe the drummer dropped his I heard it at a tea party. I heard it at a tea party. That is definitely true. It has to be true. We were drinking tea, and everybody know that okay. tea is truth serum, which doesn't actually work. From now on, anytime we have a ladies' night, it's going to be called a tea party. Yes! Oh, I love it! Yes! We're going to get drunk and spill the tea. We're going to get drunk and spill the tea. Oh, we need to have a tea party real soon. Absolutely. Real soon. and. We absolutely will not tell the men in our lives who are not, you know, around the house because it might be at my house uh, that this is not an actual tea party. You really legit will tell Marcus, I'm going to Christie's, we're having a tea party. Yes. And just let him think that we're going to be sitting here. I do have a lot of teacups and saucers, so we can even drink our booze out of teacups and saucers. Delicious tea, bourbon. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. This is happening. Tea party. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. Things are starting to feel back to normal, and man, is that refreshing. You know what else is refreshing? Best Fiends! It's as refreshing as an ice bath when they remove your kidneys. Best Fiends is a super fun match three puzzle game with adorable characters. It's bright and colorful, which makes it a nice break from the darkness of the true crime realm. I'm that weirdo who loves to combine the two. Pop on a true crime podcast, open up Best Fiends, and find out what the latest challenge or event is, and the time just flies. And what level have you gotten to while binging true crime? I have gotten to level 4,232. Wow. I've been listening to Bigfoot stuff while I do mine. I'm at level 1,015. And I am at level 2,457. You don't want to know what she does. (laughs) So once again, just going to abandon you guys to go ahead and play some Best Fiends and have a good show. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So yeah, the source from this tea party testified that she'd heard Christian had been married before and that his first wife had said, hey, go grab Charlie for some reason and take him out west. And I guess Walter too. The Reading Eagle editors were convicted and had to pay a fine of $1,000. That's $24,000 today. And that is the only justice we're going to see today. Yep, that is, uh, well, we get a little bit of poetic justice. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. Other papers did focus on the Ross family's relationship as time went on, but they were really careful after that to frame it as speculation You know what, though? I did see that some of the speculation was that an angry relative had done it because Charlie was the favorite child. Oh, that's a new one to me. And that is, in fact, rampant speculation. Sure is. But he (laughs) said in at least one source that he was the favorite. Wow. So a relative was angry that Charlie was the favorite? a relative who is not a child to themselves and so has no reason to be jealous of a child. It says that the, the speculation 
The speculation. <laughs> Family troubles had caused some relative to kidnap the favorite child. In okay, some sort all right. of revenge so, or retaliation. Or maybe even... No? Okay. No, yeah, you're right. Revenge or retaliation, yeah. You, you, you pick the favorite. You don't kidnap the least favorite. Come on. Yeah, because they're not going to try to do anything about that. So if you kidnap the favorite... So I don't know if he had maybe borrowed money from a relative and then not repaid it because he lost it in the stock market. But there was definitely speculation that Charlie was the target because he was their favorite. Wow. That is fascinating. That is one I hadn't seen. Poor Walter. Here's a quarter. Go buy some fireworks. Asshole. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh, Walter. We don't want him. Yeah, you're, I hate to break this to you, but did you know you're not daddy's favorite? <laughs> right? You're not even special enough to be kidnapped. Yeah, so why don't you just <laughs> buy some fireworks and just blow yourself up, Walter. Go on. <laughs> I feel bad for Walter. Oh, I feel terrible Walter for Walter. Walter got screwed over in all this. He Real bad. Really did not get the happy end of the stick, but theres I don't even know if there is a happy end. So. There is and there isn't. I got some stuff about Walter later. Oh, yes, yes. That, by the way, that letter from the neighbor G that ended up in the source of the libel suit ended up getting reprinted all over the country. So still yeah. people are hearing this shit. And meanwhile, Christian Ross, he couldn't eat. He couldn't work. Papers kept reporting that he was on death's door. He couldn't even make it to the libel trial. Sarah went and testified, but Christian couldn't make it. His doctor went and testified that he is in a very prostrate condition. He is unable to leave his bed. The prostration is such that he is unable to concentrate his thoughts or express himself. His brain is affected to that extent. He is very thin. He doesn't sleep naturally. He was actually bedridden for two months. Yeah, well, he's in the middle of a nervous breakdown. Yeah, his child is missing, and this is unprecedented. Of all the fears that they might have had for their children, probably dying young, <laughs> like of, a, of an illness that we now have vaccinations for or something like that, stuff along those lines. You don't just think that two random men are going to come along and, and sweep your child away. It was, just came out of nowhere for them. And then also in September, Christian started consulting some supernatural sources. He's desperate. He is. Yeah, exactly. I said, that's what I had. He, he quoted my notes exactly. Uh, Sarah had been talking to spiritualists all along, because this is the time period when spiritualism was really uh, ramping up and popular. People thought, you know, you can connect to the other side and use, like, Do sympathy. you know somebody with the letter E in their name? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, so, yeah, she'd been doing this. Christian was like, all right, fine. And so a German psychic who lived in New York had sent him a letter. So he went along with a detective to see her. He talked to her for a little bit, but he didn't think she could help him or, or bring Charlie back because she proposed to uh, bring him back using the sympathy between himself and Charlie. Charlatan. I'm really singing this episode. I don't you know are why. very singing. I'm very singing. I'm going to try and tamp it down. <laughs> tamp it down. Tamp it down. Like an 1874 person who might have some mental issues and society doesn't accept that. Tamp it down. Tamp it down. Other suggestions from uh, some sources with some ideas included a German witchcraft recipe for, apparently for returning lost children, I'm assuming. That uh, recipe was kill a chicken, then stab <laughs> it while chanting and then burning it. And by the way, my first reading of that was kill children. <laughs> I would have probably killed a child and then 
all is right with nature and your child will be returned to you. The balance has been restored. That's by what it's Somehow all about. by killing this child. <laughs> Doesn't even have to be one of yours. Well, one should hope not. Yeah. Although it would have been Walter. <laughs> it would have been poor Walter, yes. So on November 18th, the family was finally like, you know what? We're going to pay the ransom. We're just going to do this. And Henry Lewis, Charlie's uncle on the maternal side, set up a meeting with the kidnappers at the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York City. Fancy. And they never showed up. And the ransom notes died off after that. Enter Clinton Gill Mosher. This was a man in New York City. He went to the police and he said, I got two kidnappers for you. My brother, William Mosher, and his partner in crime, Joseph Douglas. He's like, I'm pretty sure they kidnapped Charlie along with another man. And uh, they said they had him stashed at some man's house, but never specified who or where. And he said, look, coppers, the men know that you're on to them. So, you know, step carefully. And uh, this is from a description of William Mosher. He'd been the leader of this little gang, along with Joseph Douglas and another man. They were burglars and river pirates. River pirates. River pirates. Which sounds like they're doing their robbing on the river, but most of it, I think, was just using the river as transportation from one robbery and then to as a, as a, get, a getaway boat. You know, gotta have that getaway boat. And so this description of William Mosher, the forefinger of the left hand was partially eaten away by a felon. He'd uh, escaped jail a little while back after being put away for robbery. Probably having a part of his finger bitten off was good motivation. <laughs> now my finger gets bitten off. I'm like, if I can find a way out of here, I'm going to be gone. So the Philadelphia Inquirer, Recounts a man who I think is William Westervelt coming forward almost immediately after Clinton Mosher does. He was William Mosher's brother-in-law. There's a lot of family shit in here. He was also a former New York City cop, possibly Philadelphia, but I think New York City. And there were a couple of sources very wildly in there. Who'd been kicked off the force because of bad conduct. And he said that Mosher and Douglas knew the cops were onto them and did want to return Charlie but also wanted to avoid prosecution and couldn't really figure out a way to get both. Yeah, well, he wanted his old job back, too. Yeah, they were like, if you, uh," and I'm I'm, I'm sure this was his idea, not theirs, Uh, if if you give us the info on Mosher Douglas and uh, what they did with Charlie Ross, you'll get your job back and the reward. Mm -hmm. He would be really set. So he did agree to help them and gave them tips that led them all around the Mid-Atlantic Those tips were all pretty much false. But then Mosher and Douglas turned up in another crime. On December 14th, they'd been trying to commit a burglary in Bay Ridge, New York, on the home of former judge... Are you ready for this name? Rulet Van Brunt. Mr. Van Brunt. Judge Van Brunt. His honor. His honor. His honor. So Bay Ridge is a neighborhood of Brooklyn. Now, they botched this robbery... And ended up in a shootout with Van Brunt's brother, nephew, a hired man, and gardener. Because Van Brunt, it was like his vacation house and he wasn't there, but the two brothers had houses side by side. Mosher was killed pretty much instantly. And they grievously wounded Douglas, who confessed as he was dying. And I have the quote from the confession. We came from New York. My name is Joseph Douglas. That man lying over there is William Mosher. 
He lives in Philadelphia and has a wife and six children. Superintendent Walling would give a good deal to get hold of that man. If he had not been killed outright, he might have told you where that boy who is stolen from Germantown is to be found. Have you any relatives about here? inquired Mr. Van Brunt. I have, was the answer. Two sisters living somewhere, but I have not seen them for more than ten years. You will find in my pocket forty dollars, and all I ask of you is that I get a decent burial. And then he did die an hour or two after being shot. So they've got the guys, and supposedly the one who knows where to find the kid is dead. That is a heartbreaker. And not the Fran Brunt family's fault at all, just to clarify. They were just responding to a burglary. But so it wasn't just the two of them, though. Because it was a gang of four. Yeah, yeah. And the third one we already mentioned was Westervelt. Yeah, Westervelt. He basically had been going back and forth. He'd kind of been doing the double agent thing and going and telling Mosher and Douglas what the police knew and when they needed to skedaddle and feeding false information to the police to send them running, scurrying around on tips and everything. Yeah, he, he was very possibly uh, a big part of this. They did confirm that these were, in fact, the kidnappers by showing Walter pictures of them. Poor Walter. And they also showed the pictures to witnesses around the neighborhood and around town who said that they'd seen the men hanging around for days prior to the kidnapping. So it's definitely confirmed here that these were the men. And there was actually some suspicion that Charlie was being held on the burglar's boat or that they'd stashed him on a little island somewhere while off doing burglaries. They did find the boat. They searched it. Of course, no luck. They also searched just about every other boat they could find on the Hudson River, and also no luck. They suspected maybe another man in the gang, maybe Westervelt or somebody had him, Mosher's wife. They did have hope that Charlie was still alive, and that whoever had him might quote-unquote drop him somewhere that a citizen might find him. And yet at the end of December, just two weeks after Mosher and Douglas were killed, the police pretty much kind of stopped searching. But they did arrest Westervelt yes. in the spring of 1875. He was jailed on $15,000 bond and charged with complicity in the abduction and concealment of the boy. And his wife was charged jointly with the same. Now, she was not jailed. They had two kids, six and eight. And it kind of seems just from kind of reading between the lines, she tried to disappear with them for a while in order to get the heat off of her. And also in order to be able to have somebody to take care of her children, because if both parents were in jail, that would make that harder. He pled not guilty. His trial begins in August 1875. And there's a little bit of drama here from the papers before the jury was even chosen. All right. So this is this is quite the moment. They kind of did subtitles in the articles. I'm going to give the subtitles too. And this one's a little bit long. So bear with me. A scene in court. Suddenly, at this time, there was a commotion in the courtroom, and Mrs. Westervelt, the prisoner's wife, accompanied by their two children, a little boy of six and a girl of eight years, came quickly into the room. The wife ran to the dock and threw herself into her husband's arms, bursting into tears and kissing him affectionately. The prisoner manifested much emotion and caressed his wife and children tenderly. Seats were furnished for them in front of the dock, and throughout the day they remained by the side of the accused man. And then the next is subtitled, A Faithful Wife. After the sensation that followed the scene had somewhat subsided, Mr. Ford rose and said, May it please the court, Mr. Westervelt being about to be arraigned, his wife jointly indicted with him, and now presents herself voluntarily and asks to be tried with him. Mr. Hogart replied, 
that this was the first time Mary Westervelt had been within the jurisdiction of the court, and her appearance was a surprise to him. That's the prosecutor, I'm imagining. The district attorney was not prepared to try her. Mr. Brown, of counsel for the prisoner, said that he had notified the district attorney, and he repealed the demand that she should either be tried or discharged. And so they basically said, all right, judges like, the DA is not ready. He wasn't prepared for this. Obviously, we can't try her now, so we'll just go ahead with Mr. Westervelt. Then they chose the jury and, of course, published their names, occupations, and addresses. Because why not? Why not? Yeah. We had a brick maker, a grocer, a blacksmith, a merchant, a carpenter, a tobacconist, a manufacturer, and a gentleman. A gentleman. A gentleman. What is your occupation, sir? Gentleman. Gentleman. Well, I think I'm a lady. <laughs> yes. Well, they wouldn't ask a woman her occupation. Uh, well, and they wouldn't let her on a court either. Yeah, that too. <laughs> the fact that they had occupations tells you they're all men. So, yeah, they charge him with kidnapping, extortion, and conspiracy, or the old-timey variations thereof. In the trial, they bring up the whole double agent thing, and uh, it was also alleged that part of their plan was to have one of them go to Europe and write another ransom note to Ross from there. Uh, but that plan was disrupted by Mosher and Douglas getting shot to death. These these men didn't have a lot of money. And also, going to Europe would be hopping on a boat for probably, like, I don't know, two weeks, maybe? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> like, but I would imagine it would be like, I'll go! <laughs> I'll take it. I'll fall on this sword any day of the week. Or at least that's what I would be like. Yes, please send me to Europe. It came out in trial that Westervelt had told someone after Mosher's and Douglas's death that if he was arrested, Charlie Ross wouldn't last three days. That's scary. And that Mosher had left Charlie, quote, up the river somewhere. <sighs> Poor Charlie. It is indeed very much a <sighs> situation. But Walter Ross did say, and I believe he testified to this in the trial, although I couldn't find specific records of it in the papers, that Westervelt had not been in the buggy. The poor kid, if he had to testify too. Oh my gosh, just always being dragged into it. The ransom notes came out in court. They were said to have been proven to have been written by Westervelt. They read all the letters in court along with the ads Christian Ross had put in the personals and that took two hours. Two hours of migraines, probably, because they were reading verbatim. From these, yes, these letters. And in a court in August. Mm. Pre-air conditioning. (laughs) Yeah, that's just torture upon torture upon torture. It was three weeks of trial. The jury actually deliberated. Didn't just go back and smoke a cigar and come back with their their guilty. They, They truly deliberated. They retired to deliberate at 7 p.m. on a Saturday, and they were meant to reconvene in court on on Monday morning. Cat just meowed. <laughs> um, they came back into court on time at 10 a.m. on Monday with their verdict ready. Up until Sunday afternoon, they had actually been nine for conviction on the conspiracy counts only, and so acquittal on the kidnapping, and three for total acquittal. Then Sunday afternoon, one of the three holdouts moved over to the conviction side, and that was where everything stood until 9 a.m. Monday morning, one hour before they were due to be in court. And that's when the last two decided to vote to convict. They convicted only on the conspiracy and extortion charges, not on the kidnapping. Well, and I think that that's 
kind of fair, unfortunately, but just because he wasn't in the carriage. Like, he wasn't in the buggy. He was not giving the boys candy every day for five days before Mm -hmm. this happened. He wasn't part of it, at least at first. He might have been at the safe house or wherever they took Charlie to first, but he wasn't part of the actual kidnapping. Yeah, and it was probably Walter Ross's testimony that kept him from convictions on the kidnapping charge. Yeah. Because he said, well, they weren't there. I don't know what you want me to do. I don't know this guy. He didn't give me candy. Yeah, he did not give me candy. He did not give me money for fireworks. I I never met him. So the New York Herald has this from the day of the jury reading their verdict. A few moments after he was seated, his wife and two children came in. He kissed his children and his wife, and she stood beside him for a moment, holding tightly to his hand while both wept silently. Mrs. Westervelt sat down beside the dock for a few moments, and then, feeling that she could not endure this final ordeal, she, accompanied by her children, was escorted out of the courtroom. So they read the verdict. He's very upset to the extent that he had to exit the courtroom through the trap door. That's amazing. They had a trap door. I wish they still did. I know. I would not gladly go to court, but I'd at least be a little more excited about it if I knew I got to exit through a trap door. (laughs) I want to put a trap door in every room of my house. (laughs) That would be amazing, actually. It would be amazing. I also want a house with secret rooms, so. (laughs) So you could have a murder house? It would definitely not be a murder house. It could be a murder house. Could be a murder house. That doesn't mean it would be a murder house. One of the trap doors opens to a pit of spikes. (laughs) Or snakes. Venomous snakes we could have in there. Just a vat of acid. Okay, anyhow. So, (laughs) Uh, William Westerbrook was sentenced to six years. Still maintained throughout his incarceration that he was innocent. After he was let out, he pretty much disappeared. But it's pretty likely he died around 1890. So this actually inspired a change of the law in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, and pretty much across the country, kidnapping had been, up until this point, a misdemeanor. (laughs) So you can take someone's child, or anybody in general, and it's just a misdemeanor. So in 1875, they changed it to a felony in Pennsylvania due to the Charlie Ross case. Christian Ross went bankrupt and his store closed by 1876. That was the same year that he wrote a book, The Father's Story of Charlie Ross, the Kidnapped Child. And the intention of this book was to raise more money to fund the search for Charlie. He didn't make much money off of it, but over the years, they would spend around $60,000. I imagine a lot of that probably borrowed from her relatives searching for their son. In 1878, the government did appoint him harbor master, came with a tiny salary, And also he got communication from P.T. Barnum, who wrote and asked him if, when Charlie was found, Christian would allow him to be on display on the Barnum tour in exchange for $10,000. And imagine at this point, it's been four years, and Christian's probably like, it's not going to be found. Okay, sure, (laughs) P.T. You weird, strange, cruel man. But by 1878... Christian Ross had seen, at that point, 573 boys who were purported to be Charlie. He later said, My hundreds of failures to identify each waif on my own has taught me to entertain no sanguine hope. Sanguine? I'm thinking. It's one of those words that you've read a bunch, but never heard spoken out loud, and you would think at the age I am. Sanguine, I think. (laughs) Sanguine hope. 
I suppose I shall continue going to see boys until I die, but I don't expect to find Charlie in any of them. Still, despite that, both he and his wife did continue the search until their deaths. They did have one more baby, Winslow, in 1880. He died at six months old, just nine days after the sixth anniversary of the kidnapping. I know, my gosh. So Christian Ross, he died age 73 in 1897. Sarah Ross died at age 78 in 1912. Both deaths were said to be from heart failure. It's said that Christian Ross regretted not paying the ransom immediately, just right off the bat, as soon as it was asked for, up to his dying day. And by the time Sarah died, the Ross children said, so that was in 1912, they said that they'd probably looked at more than 1,000 men and boys who claimed to be Charlie. Well, and I think it's because of that that the surviving children got very... Skeptical? Y- cynical? Cynical. <laughs> cynical. We're going to Suspicious. Go cynical. <laughs> yeah. This, this came out of nowhere. This I found in zero sources except one. And it was actually towards the end of my research. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what? What? Okay, so now you can (laughs) hear what gave me that reaction. Just a month after Christian Ross died in 1897, someone with a familiar last name came forward, Ellsworth Mosher. That was Clinton Mosher's son. He was the original informant who was like, I think my brother did this. And he said uh, his father had recently died and just before dying had said that they had killed Charlie Ross. Then they'd sealed the body up in the restaurant that the Moshers had abandoned four years earlier at 55 Grand Street in New York. Ellsworth Mosher said his dad told him that the building was demolished in 1881 and workmen found a child's skeleton in the process. Oh, no. But it's also said that William Mosher's oldest son had died long before the kidnapping and those were his bones in the wall, which also questions about that yeah i just questions especially if it was long before the kidnapping so while they were running the restaurants then they just yeah that's that's that smell's not going to bring in the customers i'm telling you what <laughs> no i it's can not. see why they shut shut down though like <laughs> yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense it smells like a morgan here Those are just, you're gonna get some bad yelp reviews so the buffalo evening news had this to say on the matter Had William Mosher and his accomplices been successful in getting the reward they asked for the return of Charlie Ross, they likely would have opened a criminal business that would have brought terror and dismay into many households. As it was, there were many imitators of the crime of child stealing, but it always brought trouble to those who were engaged in it. The life of little Charlie Ross, therefore, may be said to have saved the nation from a horrid industry, which, managed by such a heartless wretch as William Mosher, proved to be would have wrecked many homes. So yeah, it's basically the same idea that the police had had earlier around the kidnapping that, oh, if this is successful, we'll have copycat crimes. But the Buffalo Evening News is saying, well, it wasn't successful, so there weren't copycat crimes. Yet. Yeah. Especially not particularly famous ones. And so, yeah, Walter Ross, uh, you want to talk about where he uh, went in the future? Yeah. So uh, Walter Ross actually became pretty successful At 31 years old, he had purchased a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. He was an investment banker in Manhattan with the firm Post and Flag. So he was 
Quite wealthy. Go ahead. How much did he buy that seat for? $29,000, which in that time, it was $1899 when he bought it, would have been over $700,000. Wow. Wow. But so, yes, he was actually pretty successful in life. He did go ahead and write at the 50-year anniversary. He wrote like a little thing in the paper. And he also has said, it is the 50th anniversary of a great sorrow to us. We have long since despaired. We are constantly in receipt of letters and visits from people claiming to be my brother. Of course, we have never given up all hope that someday he may return, but each of these incidents has only opened the wounds for our sorrow, recalling a tragedy that has hung over our family for these long years. And then he went on to say that he was honoring his brother who they thought had been killed by his captors in the winter of 1874. So he pretty much said, like, my brother is dead. Mm -hmm. But we loved him. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Now, 50th anniversary. It was just a month later that the Leopold and Loeb story broke. Mm -hmm. And they had kidnapped 14-year-old Bobby Franks in Chicago and killed him. And they said they had taken inspiration from the Charlie Ross kidnapping as the perfect crime. Now, there's a little more to his story. It just kind of took a a gap in here. So he was 25 when he purchased his seat. uh, And then after three bids fell through, he finally sold his seat in November of 1927 for another record sum, $270,000 in that time. And I don't have the calculator that you have. $4.2 million today. Of course you do. So, of course I do. Yeah. Both of them. It was a record-setting buy when he bought it in 1899. It was a record-setting sale when he sold it in 1927. And if you're uh, thinking about dates and historic events, uh, he was lucky he got out of there. About two years would go by, and that seat would not have been worth legs on the chair. I don't know. I don't know what a seat on on the New York Stock Exchange actually entails. And I'm fine not knowing. It's okay. But he ended up on a a mansion in Chestnut Hill above Lincoln Drive on his estate in New York. And he wanted to avoid his father's gravest mistake, bankruptcy, and not having enough money to pay the ransom. Exactly. Yeah. And he did marry and had five kids. So he would end up losing one of them, tragically, much like his father had. He lost his eldest son, Walter Jr., at age 38 in a tragic car accident. His car was going over a bridge. The girders buckled. He was actually on his way to his father's house, which makes it all the more painful. A 200-foot section collapsed, and Walter Jr. was killed instantly. And it was soon found out that just hours before the bridge had collapsed, a truck that exceeded the weight limit had passed over it, weakening the bridge. And so he lost his son. And also, we should say of the house, the home where the Ross family had lived and where the boys had been kidnapped from, at least it being torn down in 1926 did kind of slow the flow of fake Charlie's. Because that was where they would gravitate to when they... Yeah, they'd show up at the old house. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and it also had been a big tourist attraction in general. Yeah. You know, so, because people are attracted to the the grim and and the sad and the macabre. That's why we have listeners. (laughs) That should be our tagline. (laughs) Cold timey crimey, because people are attracted to the grim, the macabre, and the sad. (laughs) 
in black and white. <laughs> so. so then a weird thing happened. Are we ready for Gustav Blair to, I, to burst onto the scene? for Gustav Blair. Oh my God, Gustav Blair. Holy hell. Okay, so. I'm like, yay, we finally get to talk about this. Weirdness. I've been excited about Gustav Blair for like days now. <laughs> All right. We're going to be introducing on my next to next to last page of notes a whole bunch of new characters so buckle in there's a whole new cast of characters <laughs> there is it's bonkers we have john hawk 15 in 1874 and lincoln miller 11 both of them of illinois and in the summer of 1874 hawk sort of borrowed miller from miller's father rainier miller he was a farmer said he was going to see his sister and he wanted somebody to mind his sister's child. But instead, Gustav Blair's story went that Miller ended up mining a little four-year-old boy in a cave in Pennsylvania. That boy, when asked his name, said Charlie Ross. So in the fall, John Hawk brings Lincoln Miller back to the Miller farm. And along with him, he's bringing another boy. He's like, oh, my sister died suddenly. You know how it is. It's 1874. And uh, so this is her son. And so the Miller family took in this four-year-old. But they, they didn't miss the confluence of events here. They, were, they saw the kidnapping headlines and they saw the four-year-old who had been brought in their house. They were like, a four-year-old was kidnapped and now there's a four-year-old here. Hmm. Suspicious. Scratch my head about this a bit. Maybe uh, stroke my whiskers. So... But they were afraid that if they came forward, they would be implicated as the kidnappers. So they're, they're kind of, I would say they're in a no-win situation, but... I mean, they definitely could have handled it better. They certainly could have handled it better if this was actually the case. We'll get to some ideas about whether or not it was. But So instead of coming forward, a few years after that, the family patriarch, patriarch, <laughs> record skip, Rainier Miller got into an argument with John Hawk about the purported Charlie Ross that he had in his household for a couple years and ended up killing Hawk, according to the story. So they had renamed Charlie as Nelson Miller after their own deceased child, Nelson, but were still super scared that they found out to the extent that Rainier Miller threatened Nelson slash Charlie when he started asking questions about his true origins, as he suspected that he was adopted. So, you're like, people can't know that we have you. They might think we're kidnappers. I'll kill you if they tell. They might think I've kidnapped you, so I'll murder you instead. Exactly, exactly. It's definitely rational, logical thinking, and it makes perfect, perfect sense. And uh, what also makes sense is that Charlie slash Nelson... Uh, Changed his name after this incident and fled to Canada, as one does. And he had changed his name to Gustav Blair. So now we have Charlie Ross slash Nelson Miller slash Gustav Blair. Oh, one person. Oh, one person. Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to refer to him as Gustav Blair from now on. Okay. Just remember, first he was supposedly Charlie Ross in this story. Then he was Nelson Miller. Now he's Gustav Blair. So Lincoln would later tell Blair the whole story. You know, about the whole, the, the cave and the boy and the kidnapping. Eventually, Blair came back to Illinois. He got work as a carpenter. He managed in 1932 to get some publicity for his story. Might have been because a little bit of groundwork had been laid by the fact that just a few weeks before that, the Lindbergh baby had been kidnapped. 
by the way, we have episodes on both the Lindbergh baby and Leopold and Loeb. If you haven't heard those, you can go back in the catalog and give those a listen. And actually, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, just a little over 30 miles away from Germantown. Mm-hmm. Like, that's insane to me. <laughs> it's a, two famous kidnappings within such a small range. So what Blair did was he tried to set up an appointment with Walter Ross to make his claim, and Ross ignored him because he... He'd had it. We would, he was asked about it, and he said, Every so often, somebody bobs up and claims to be my kidnapped brother. We have heard of this man before and have determined to our own satisfaction that there is nothing to his story. Blair ended up in Phoenix after he retired, and then managed to get to Philly in 1938, where he went on We the People, a radio show, to publicize his claim. Just think about how time has passed in the framework of spreading news and and publicizing information you need to get out to the public. When Charlie Ross was kidnapped, it was put a personal ad in the paper and put something in the lost and found at at very first until it it picked up steam and became actually a headline. And now we have somebody going on a radio show. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's kind of, kind of crazy to think how much time has passed and how much has changed since Charlie had been kidnapped. So in 1939, Gustav Blair had been ignored by Walter for all these years, so he goes to court. He sued Walter in civil court in Phoenix. Walter did get the court papers, but he ignored them. By the way, don't do that. Also, by the way, at this point, just just so we understand how time has passed, Walter is now 70 years old. Yes. It's been 65 years since this happened, and this is still his life. I'm not saying I blame him for ignoring the court papers, but you, you also, you shouldn't do that because that's how default judgments happen, which Blair got a default judgment on his behalf, but he still insisted on a jury trial. And the jury came back confirming after, do you know how many, how much deliberation it was? Um, no, I don't think I have that. Do you want to guess? Mm, an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, subtract an hour and seven. Oh my God. Eight minutes of deliberation. It's been 65 years, but after eight minutes of talking about it, we can definitely confirm that this man is a boy who was kidnapped again, 65 years ago. Uh, apparently it was so unexpected that Gustav Blair's wife fainted. His second wife. <laughs> his second wife, yes. <laughs> and he was then allowed to change his name to Charlie Ross, which he did. So he was Charlie Ross, Nelson Miller, Gustav Blair... Charlie Ross. Charlie Ross. Everything comes full circle. Walter Ross was reached for comment, and he said, Blair is evidently just another of those cranks who have been bothering us for the last 65 years. The idea that my brother is still alive is not only absurd, but this man's story seems unconvincing. Meanwhile, Blair's going around saying that he's going to sue for his share of the family estate. He was asked about Walter in an interview, and he said, If my older brother lives for five years, he'll seek me out and admit our kinship. But the joke was on him because Walter Ross died in four. Yep. <laughs> so it was July 22nd, 1943. He had just marked, just a couple weeks before, the 69th anniversary of his brother's kidnapping. There are some tenuous links in the case they put forward between Hawk and the circumstances around the case. So a stable keeper who kept the horse that pulled the buggy in the kidnapping, said that a teenage boy had come to pick up the horse, but it's a teenage boy. You know, you can send any teenage boy around That could be John Hawk, though, too. It could be John Hawk, yes. 
Uh, what? Hold on. I do have, Ooh. I have one thing real fast, though. Yeah, no, go ahead. Absolutely. No, don't apologize. Give, give it so to me. From, give it to me. From Walter Ross's funeral, it said, above all, he had not allowed his father's obsession to become his own. In order to live, he let Charlie Ross die. Oh, it's so painful. But like, okay, so this is what kills me. So say this was Charlie Ross. Mm-hmm. He refused to even meet with this guy. Refused. Even after a court said, no, I think there's enough evidence that this is possibly your brother. No, not even going to humor this. What if it was? And he he lost out on that chance to, to see his brother. Well, okay, so part of the thing with the court would be that because he didn't respond to the court papers, there was no cross-examination. Yeah. So only one side of the story was told, and that was Blair's side. So his, his very inaction and ignoring it only gave him another justification of, well, even if they say yes, I'm not going to believe it because there wasn't any... I know, but it breaks my heart because what no, if? No, I hear you. The what if? I have a little... Maybe a little answer to that. What if? We'll see. We'll see. But so yeah, so this is kind of the tenuous links that they made. Um, some of Lincoln's testimony did echo bits and pieces of ransom letters and known locations of the kidnappers at various points. Although keep in mind, there was a book <laughs> written mm-hmm. about the case by Charlie's own father. And the ransom notes were, facsimiles were in, in the book. The ransom letters requested that the personal ads responding to the kidnappers use the code word John, and Hawk's first name was John. Census records do have a John W. Hawk living in the same county as the Millers in 1880, and his birthplace is listed as Pennsylvania on those census records. But yeah, like I said, there's no cross-examination, so nobody could bring up all the the holes in there, and nobody could bring up even the, the Ellsworth Mosher thing. That had happened uh, 40 years prior. Ellsworth Mosher came forward with the supposed true full story of what happened. The jurors never got to hear that. Yeah. You know, so I do think he did. He did make a mistake there. He should have at least sent like lawyers to fight. But I think he thought even dignifying it with a response would lend it some legitimacy, I would imagine. And also, again, like you said, his efforts not to follow his own father's path into the obsession. So, yeah, this is, this is interesting because over on the Library of Congress blog, which was one of my sources for this episode, uh, Heather Thomas wrote an article about the Charlie Ross kidnapping. Somebody asked her a question about, well, could there be DNA testing done? She said in a comment in response, I did find information from 2000 that a blood sample from the last known male descendant in the family, the son of Gustav Blair, was taken with the hope that a Ross descendant would agree to cooperate with a DNA test. However, I did not find any newspaper articles after that time period that reported a DNA test that had ever been done or any results found. Today, DNA testing is very expensive and was likely even more costly in the early 2000s, so it would not surprise me if the testing never took place due to cost. Or, of course, a Ross descendant was unwilling to participate in the testing. There was a response to that comment. The name of the person who responded to that comment did you see this too? I You're saw smiling, this. yeah. Yeah. Larry Miller. You want to read the comment? Do you have the comment? Or? I don't have it, no, but I did I <laughs> you, do recall seeing it. We usually don't include internet comments as sources, well, and, but this I, one you can't, I, I couldn't not, you know? See, Miller is such a common name, though, and I'm like, this could easily be a troll. I don't even know if you, registering on the Library of Congress, is, you have to put a name, and even if you did, 
you probably don't have to send in your freaking ID to verify it or anything, you I know? I bet he didn't send in any DNA. Yeah, exactly. So what he wrote, this person on the internet who may or may not be Larry Miller, who may or may not have been related to the Miller family, my family conducted DNA testing and have confirmed that Gustav Blair, his real name, Nelson Miller, was in fact not Charlie Ross. But in a little bit of irony, on December 13th, 1943, the man known as Nelson Miller slash Gustav Blair slash maybe Charlie Ross died of influenza on the exact same day, 31 years earlier, was when Sarah Ann had collapsed and died. Oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't even make that connection. My goodness. The exact day. Wow. That's a little... Well, creepy. I admit. Spooky. Spooky, yeah. In 2013, something was found. 22 somethings. 22 somethings? 22 somethings. Ransom notes. Bridget Flynn, a school librarian in Philadelphia, was going through some family artifacts and heirlooms when she found a bundle of little envelopes. Now, this I do not have. This was in the Smithsonian Magazine, and it was another, I'm pretty sure it was another Carrie Hagen bit of information. I think she's pretty deep in this case, having the book, and she writes some articles and places. You see a bunch of letters in a bundle in Family Artifact, and you're like, oh, they're probably love letters, you know. That's, that's I would assume, yeah. Yeah. They open them up, and uh, she and her daughter, and they read the first line. Mr. Ross, be not uneasy. You son, Charlie Brister, be all writ... We is got him and no powers on earth can deliver out of our hand. So it was either 22 of the 23 ransom notes or sources are wrong about the 23 and it was actually 22. Which once you get to that many horribly written ransom notes, it, the counting doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the fact that they're horribly written and you want to just set them on fire is what matters. They went on to auction. This was at the Pennsylvania Sale, an annual auction put on by Freeman's Auctioneers and Appraisers of Philadelphia. And appraisers had put the letters at around $3,000 to $5,000. This was towards the end of the day. It was like lot 600 and something. Bidding started at $1,500. And then there was a bidding war. And the letters went for $16,000 plus a 25% premium fee. What's 25% of $16,000? $20,000 altogether. Yep. $16 plus $4,000. Twenty thousand dollars—the exact amount of the originally demanded ransom. I almost feel like it was planned, but that's I a lot of money to spend. Feel for... like that was planned. Yeah, it, it it does feel like a lot of money to spend just for synchronicity, <laughs> or you know, like that. That's you imagine though, like weirdness. just two rich guys be like, "All right, so I know that there's there's going to be a twenty five percent. So you, we got to bid each other up till one of us hits sixteen thousand, and then no more." Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> right. It will be perfect. Perfect. My best prank ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put this on YouTube. It's just a prank, bro. The anonymous buyer purchased them to keep them in Philadelphia and gave them to the Germantown Historic Society, who is caring for them. And uh, I believe you can still go look at them. It's not known how they got into the Flynn's possessions. Uh, no relations known between the Flynn's and the Ross. So there's no common thread, you know, so a Flynn married a Ross or anything like that, that. And maybe they gave them the letters. Although going back in her family history, Bridget Flynn had ancestors who lived in Germantown. So there's the idea that maybe they were part of an auction lot originally, 
Why they were auctioned off, though, is still also a question. If they were auctioned off is a question as well. We just don't know. Well, you know what? I was I was just thinking. So the the first Ross house at one point had been um, Presbyterian Church Board of Trustees used it for Sunday school. Yes, actually, I think there were three separate churches that ended up using the house for various purposes throughout the years until it was torn down in 26. So that's what I was, I was just thinking, because even if they were just in Germantown, maybe one of them had worked at the church. Oh, yeah. And had just saw them and scooped them up and took them home, because obviously you don't want the Sunday school kids to have them. They might end up having horrible spelling and grammar. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's how they're going to learn to read. Got to keep them away from that. Yeah. It's obviously written by an Italian. Yeah. Obviously, this Italian handwriting. I, I like to think that that policeman was confused between Italian and italics. Maybe. <laughs> so, what do you think happened to Charlie? I think it's the case of the men who kidnapped him died. Nobody knew where he was. I actually am kind of on the island theory. On uh, the island? They had stashed him on an island somewhere, and they were going to come back and grab him, but they they died. Maybe one of them didn't even know. Maybe Douglas didn't even know. Only Mosher knew. Mosher died, and that's that. And the, the kid dies on an island. Just There's, like, little islands, like, dotting yeah. know, the Hudson and such. And so, yeah, that's my theory, because I think, I feel like... If he was still alive when they died, an actual adult person was holding him somewhere, that would have been the time for that person to come forward. The people who did it can't come after you. And you can just come forward and say, like, look, they did it. They stashed this kid with me. I uh, don't know what newspapers are. (laughs) I had no idea. They just told me a, a, a story. Oh, it's my sister's kid. She died, whatever the story was. And now I've been caring for this kid. And, oh, what do you know? I just walked past a newspaper vendor and he said, XG, XG. And <laughs> I saw it. And I was like, oh, crap. That's the kid in my house. Had no idea. And you have a good chance of, of not having any repercussions. Not 100%. Yeah. But it's a much better chance than if anybody had come forward while Douglas and Mosher were alive. So I feel like if any adult had had him, there's a high probability they would have come forward or dropped him somewhere. Yeah. Left him somewhere where people would find him and be like, holy crap, it's Charlie Ross. So yeah, I think that since none of those things happened, uh, I do think that he he perished, um, possibly alone. What do you think? I am actually kind of on a similar thought, although I think he was in a cave in Pennsylvania. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. So I think there was a little bit of truth to Lincoln's story, where he would watch the boy in a cave. Mm-hmm. And I think after Lincoln went back, they would move caves. There's, If anyone knows Pennsylvania, there are so many caves. There's, there's a cave in the woods behind my house. <laughs> yes, there are so many caves. And so I'm thinking that Mosher probably was moving him around cave to cave so he wasn't found. Mm-hmm. And probably had him stashed in a cave because his wife is like, don't bring that kidnap boy here. We have kids. <laughs> We can't have extra kids. So the wife was like, no, piss off with that kidnapped child. Go somewhere else. And he goes, I'll go to the caves. And just shoved him in a cave, went and got himself killed. And the little boy was probably just alone in the woods. Now, fingers crossed, maybe somebody found him and took him in and and didn't read papers because yeah. they live in the woods and didn't realize yeah. who he was. And maybe he got to live a long life of just being. And I really hope that that's the case. 
But I think that he is probably in a cave somewhere. And it's entirely possible with the way so many men were turned away, boys and men, as, as the years went on, it's entirely possible he could have come forward and been disbelieved for whatever reason. Yeah. Or or ignored or whatever. So, yeah, it's a sad, sad case. But I hope that he did li- live, and I hope that maybe he was one of the thousands of, of people that tried to come forward. Or even just lived and didn't have that frustration of yeah. being like, my own family won't recognize me. I was there, Walter. We were, we were know, playing. Part of me just hopes that he lived and had no memory of, exactly. of all that. It was but, like, I grew up in a happy family. I don't remember anything from before I was age eight, but it's fine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Let's, you know what? That's my headcanon now. <laughs> I've decided. Thank you for giving me that relief. So, I appreciate it very much. <laughs> he lived a long and healthy life and had no idea who he was. That, yeah. That's what happened. There we go. Absolutely. <laughs> so, of course, the legacy, don't take candy from strangers. Ransom notes for children, kind of a part of the legacy. Leopold and Loeb, part of the legacy. But some good, really. The Charlie Project, which has over 14,000 profiles of missing persons, is named after Charlie Ross. It's run by Megan Good, pretty much a one-woman show as far as I know, and she does take donations to help maintain this database so that these cold cases, these missing persons can potentially be found and so that families can actually have some resolution, be it you know positive, negative, whatever. You can donate, and I, if you have the money feeling like donating, I absolutely encourage you. Uh, via PayPal with the email address administrator at charlieproject.org. And I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. And uh, what do you think about sending a little bit out of our, our show stash their way? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah, let's, let's send a little bit because that's not only like in, incredibly important to families, but also true crime podcasters. Yeah, and, <laughs> so. well, and to give a nod to, to poor little Charlie. Yes, absolutely. So in, in memory of, of Charlie and... You know, we don't know specifically what his fate was. We have ideas and conjecture and rampant speculation, but he's definitely dead. We know that much because uh, unless unless he found a fountain of youth somewhere. Yeah, by now he's certainly, certainly dead. Certainly, certainly is. And it is a very sad story, and but fascinating, really, how when something new comes about, I mean, granted, yes, there have been kidnappings for ransom prior to this in other countries, if it wasn't the first one in America, it was the first one that was publicized to the extent that people knew about it. So this really took a while, but it kind of became a craze in like the 20s and the 30s, the kidnapping of people. And gosh, if you were actually a, a wealthy businessman, you had reason to be a little afraid because there's more than one wealthy businessman that was kidnapped for ransom. That was a thing. They would be like, I don't know why they didn't just kidnap their children, but they were like, well, I guess it didn't work for <laughs> Charlie Ross's kidnapper, so I guess we better just take the whole grown man. So, yeah, definitely has a lasting legacy and an unfortunate one. So, yeah, that is Charlie Ross. And we hope that you were educated and entertained at the same time. And you can always come over to our Patreon for some more education-tainment. Education-tainment. <laughs> education-tainment. And also, if you're not really interested in joining the Patreon, but you want to contribute to the show and support us a little bit, you can do that using our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com via PayPal. You can also come and give us ideas and cases that you'd like us to do, like we just did. (laughs) Thanks to our wonderful Facebook follower, Justin. So it was Justin, right? It's right there. 
Justin, yes. <laughs> I'm back to page one of my notes. I could have just looked down. It would have been fine. So yes, thanks to Justin. And you can do that. We really like to know what you like to hear, what you want to hear. And so, you know, it's not a guarantee that we'll do the case because some things might not have the right, you know, amount of resources that we can access in order to actually do a full episode. But we'll definitely look at it for sure. So, yes, please do that. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Old Timey Crimey, and all those places. And the email address I already said if you are not a social media person. So, if you have any opinions about or thoughts, what's your headcanon about what happened to Charlie Ross? Uh, you should hit us up over on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and uh, tell us your theory. We'd I'd love to hear it. The, the more theory, the better, because it's a fascinating case, and there's so many different possibilities, as, as we've demonstrated. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. But if you don't feel like doing that, you can just uh, flap your gums a little bit. Go tell a friend. That's word of mouth is one of the best ways for podcasts to get more listeners. And if you enjoy this, your friends will probably enjoy it too, because they're probably the same exact type of people that we are. <laughs> Grim, sad, macabre. <laughs> so, so you should absolutely do that. And merch, links in the show notes. Amazon wishlist for books you can send us, links in the show notes. That is all my bullshit. I can tell Amber has to be really badly. Do you want to take a break and then we can... She's no, pushing through. Pushing through. Power through. through. Power through. Okay, all right. What are you doing this week? Um, finals week. I have, I have finals for school, so I am doing lots and lots of school stuff. And um, then I'm going to have a nice little happy certificate to to shove in people's faces and put on my LinkedIn. Nice. So. Excellent. <laughs> I wish you much, much luck and, and success with finals week. We'll get through it. I've lived through so many finals weeks. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. just keep on pushing. It'll be okay. Just saying the words "finals week" is like got my heart rate just a little bit elevated in, in, in just remembrance. I know. <laughs> yeah, I've been smoking more. Um. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so yeah, um, I am going back to the gym because I am finished at physical therapy. Not because I'm all healed up, but because my insurance only covered twenty sessions. Oh, and so I'm going to go back to the gym and, and start doing my, my hip exercises there to continue the strengthening and hopefully improve some. And I'm also going to work on my time machine because I discovered that I realized this week my, my new dream job, and that is to work at the Unsolved Mysteries Telecenter. <laughs> oh, my God. Is that still a thing? No. That's oh. why I need a time travel machine. <laughs> you need to go back to 1986. Yes. <laughs> yes. I need to go back in time so I can get hired at the Unsolved Mysteries Telecenter and then have the excitement of, like, especially on the show, the nights the show airs, because they're always, like, seven minutes after the show aired, our Telecenter, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to work there. Why doesn't it exist now? <laughs> so, Yes. That's what I'm going to be doing. So I'm going to be working on that time machine. You're going to end up going back too far and getting a telegram saying, I am Charlie Ross. Yes. That's exactly what's going to happen. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's everything for us. And Amber's going to go pee. And thank you for listening to our filthy words. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Our sources for this episode are Heather Thomas on the Library of Congress blog, PBS, Find a Grave, Thomas Everly in Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, Carrie Hagen on Smithsonian Mag, also Carrie Hagen, the book We Is Got Him, The Kidnapping That Changed America, 
Ryan Finn on Medium, Megan Good on The Charlie Project. And from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Yonkers Statesman, and the New York Herald via Chronicling America. I'm going to let the cat in here because he's losing his mind. He was up in the window. Oh, yeah. He, 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 I love it when he does that. It's so cute. He's staring right at me. We locked eyes. Come on in. Better be good. <laughs> Attitude. Yes. Hemingway. Hey, stop giving me stuff to edit. Oh, he's such a pain in the ass cat. I love him.